You are listening to a teaching series from Jubilee Church entitled, From This Day Forward. Whether you are currently married or want to be married, this series discusses three commitments for starting fresh in the fight against marital destruction and unhappiness. If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Well, we're going to finish a, a, a series on marriage, really about relationships, called this, uh, From This Day Forward. And the big idea is that we want to uh, look at four different commitments that we are going to commit to from this day forward, uh, uh, drawing a line in the sand from our past, uh, from our present, and what we're going to do in, in the future. And if we make these commitments, we'll have um, better relationships, specifically a better uh, marriage relationship. And uh, the first week, we talked about how we need to make a commitment to relinquish expectations, to relinquish expectations, because we all come into uh, any relationship, especially the marriage relationship, with desires and hopes and dreams, but something happens, like I don't know if it's after the honeymoon or maybe six or eight weeks later, is those dreams uh, become expectations. So when we were engaged, you know, anything was possible and it was all wonderment and and, and dreaming together. And then now that you're my husband, I expect, now that you're my wife, I expect. And so we talked about uh, really the antidote to that is to make your marriage, to make your relationships a submission competition, that each person in the marriage shouldn't be seeking to go to the front of the line, but the back of the line, Uh, to not put expectations on the other person, but to say, look, I'm going to give myself to you, I'm going to submit to your desires, and, and in that, we can love the way Christ has loved us. And so that bled into the second week, we say, okay, if we're going to be that kind of a spouse, if we're going to be that kind of a friend, if we're going to be that kind of a person, we have to make God central. We have to make seeking God a huge commitment. It's the only way that we can be the spouse uh, that God wants us to be. It's the only way that we can attract the kind of spouse that we want to attract and maintain that attraction. But then ultimately, the reason why we want to seek God is that in the end, marriage uh, is, is not a destination, it's a vehicle, meaning like marriage just points to a much, much bigger, more permanent, eternal relationship with Jesus Christ and the church. So whether you're married or single isn't the big deal. The big deal is Jesus and, and committing to uh, his bride. So seeking God, making that a commitment. And then last week, we just practical about fighting fair, about how to uh, handle conflict, that marriages, uh, they don't cause conflict, they reveal conflict. Uh, and so we, we talked about how to resolve those, not avoiding them, but resolving them. And so and to talk about this fourth and final commitment, I want to go to the most famous famous chapter uh, in the Bible when it refers to love, and that is, of course, 1 Corinthians uh, 13, 1 through 7. And in the first uh, verse, Paul says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, the Corinthians, they were a very gifted group of people. In fact, they prided themselves on being really gifted, like great communicators, great orators, and they kind of wanted Paul to be that way. Like, hey, we, you know, we, we, we think you're great, but we, we'd like you to be more like this guy who's really good at communicating. And they're really into spiritual power and, and, and all of this. And, and, and so they had like these competitions on who could speak the tongues the longest, the loudest, the best, and all this kind of weird stuff. And so he's like, hey, look, that's not, that's not really where it's at. That's not the definition and it's spilled maturity. I could speak in the tongues of men, not just of men, but of angels. Like, if you think that's good, I could speak, I could have the best communication skills. I can have, in, you know, I can have that kind of insight. But if I don't have love, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a noisy gong. I'm a clanging 
symbol, which is kind of a, as a side note, you know, when you judge someone like me, you know, whether it's a pre, you know, preacher or teacher, someone who's communicating God's word, don't, don't judge our spiritual maturity about how well we communicate or don't communicate. Don't judge uh, because of, of Bible knowledge. Those things are gifts. Those things, uh, they're, they're, they're not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is defined not by gifting, but by love. So ask my wife, ask my kids, ask my friends, ask them, not just taking a look. Oh, he, you know, he speaks, so he must be really mature. That's not necessarily true. And then he says this. You didn't have to say amen on that, by the way. Uh, in a, in a, that's where you don't say amen. Okay. And if I have prophetic powers, how awesome would that be? And understand all mysteries of knowledge. And so some people think, you know, deep Christians are those who have lots and lots of knowledge. Paul's like, well, that's not true. And then he says, if I have all faith so as to remove, I mean, how amazing would that be to have the kind of faith where I could say to that mountain move, or at least to say to that car move so I can have your parking spot. Like if, that, if I had that kind of a faith, that would be amazing. But he's not saying, it's not prophetic powers. It's not having knowledge. It's not even having faith that makes you a deep Christian. What makes you a deep Christian is love. He says, if, if I have all this stuff, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. Literally in the Greek, it means I'm a nobody. Huh. And then he moves on. He gives us another way. He says, and if I give all that I have, not 10%, not 20%, if I give 100%, and then after I give all that I have, if I give up my very life, if I allow my body to be burned, if I do make all these amazing sacrifices for the poor, for this, for that, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Now, we would encourage people to give, but if your motivation is to give to get something, I just want you to know Paul says that you don't get anything. If you give to get something, you get nothing, even if you give all that you have. So there's this phrase that you may have picked up on, like the one that's bold and underlined in every verse, that it talks about having love. And this is, you know, like, what does that even mean to have love? Like, what does it mean to have love? And like, if I was to ask you, hey, let's do a survey. How many here have love? You're like, I have love. I don't know what it means, but I have it. You know, it's like we have this vague feeling. It's like something we possess, something that's inside of us, something that we feel. And, and Paul probably sensed in us and, and in people that, that, that love is something that we possess. That we know we have it. It's inside of us. So it's like a kind of a feeling. So I have compassion for people. I have love because I have compassion for people. I have love because I feel sorry for that person. I feel sorry for those children. I feel sorry for that couple. I feel bad for what you're going through. I have love or take it into the relational love. I've fallen in love. I have love because I've fallen in love. You know, Cupid pulled back his bow and he got me and, you know, I just kind of fell into it. Like, you know, I tripped into a pool and I fell into love. Like I'm, I've fallen in love or, or I've fallen out of love. I used to feel love, but now I don't feel love. So I don't have love. I once had it, but now I don't. But notice how Paul defines love. He says love is patient, love is kind. He doesn't say love is something you experience. Love is something you do. Love, love is not a, a feeling to respond to. Love is, an, is something you decide. So love is patient. Love is kind. And that means love defers. It's always deferring. You know, we already talked about that, right? It's a submission competition. It's, it's a race to the back of the line. Love is, love is kind. It doesn't envy. It's not jealous. It doesn't compete. It doesn't demand the center stage. It doesn't boast. It's, it's not arrogant. And then he goes on. Love is not rude. Love is not rude. It's not dishonoring, in other words. 
So if something's dishonoring to someone else, it doesn't matter if you can't you know, find a verse for it or not. Like, it's off balance. It's not what love does. Love does not dishonor. It does not insist on its own way. It's not self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own end. It's not irritable. I'll say it this way. Love doesn't have a temper. You may have a temper, but love does. You know, some people say, you know, I just, you know, I kind of have a temper. You know, it's kind of part of my personality. It's not a part of love's personality. It's not resentful. Other translations say it this way. It keeps no record of wrongdoing. Now, how hard is that? I mean, how hard is it to like keep no, you know, I'm gonna keep no record of wrong against you. Now, it's really hard to do, but wouldn't it be amazing to be in a relationship with someone who does not do that? That would be amazing. And then it says this. He says, it's kind of, you know, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. And then there are these four statements that he makes. Um, three of them, you know, I, I can kind of get with, but one of them doesn't seem quite right. Love bears all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. I think I could do though. I, I think I can, I, I think I can bear with, you know, I can like put up with, like I, you know, that's, you know, that's up to, you know, I think I can hope. I can have hope. That's something I can do. I can endure, you know, even if it's tough, I can, you know, like persevere. But to believe all things, um, it, it, it literally means to believe, you know, everything, to always trust. I mean, it seems naive. It even seems stupid. It seems like it's not something you should, uh, you should do. It seems like it's going to mess you up. Uh, in, in fact, it kind of, because that, that seems like, well, if, if I'm going to believe everything, they have to be believable, right? It's, it's up to the other person. If I'm going to trust them, they have to be trustworthy. Like, how do I trust someone who's not trustworthy? How do I believe someone who's not believable? And he says, look, love, if you want to know what it means to be a loving person, we're going to spend some time on this, is that love believes the bet, love believes everything. It's this idea that love always defaults to trust. The default mode for love is to trust. And Paul is saying, if you will make the commitment from this day forward to make the choice to love by making the choice to trust, the love bank in your relationship goes up. Love is not a response to how you feel. Love is a choice based on what you decided to do. And so this fourth commitment is that you need to make the choice to love. Now, <laughs> a few years ago, I was doing a wedding and I had me at a point similar to this. And my wife told me, you need to make sure that you say that the point is make the choice to love. Because in my notes, and the way I was going to say it was make love a choice. And so like, as I'm, and she was right, because as I'm doing this wedding, I'm sitting there going about and like, here's some things you guys need to consider. And they're kind of all looking at each other, Google it, not even paying attention to me. And, and, um, and I just, I somehow slipped in my brain and all I said was make love. What you need to do is you need to make love. And I didn't say make love a choice. I just said make love. And, they, and then they started paying attention to what I was saying. They started looking at me like all big eyed. And the father of the bride is like, his eyes are, I mean, he's like rushing the stage at like, what are you? So my wife is right. So it's make the choice to love. Okay, we're going, we're going with that one. That's the fourth commitment. Make the choice to love. Because here's the thing. It may not feel like it's a choice. And as we talk about this point, you'll probably pick up on this. It feels like we don't have a choice. It feels like it's something that we just respond to. But if you get anything, I want you to understand that you do have a choice in this. So I'll illustrate it this way because this plays out in all relationships, not just in a marriage. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In, in a relationship, there are moments when there is a gap between what we expect someone to do and what we experience. 
You know, because they said they'd be there at six. They said they'd pick up the kids. They said they'd keep their word. Uh, you know, they said they'd be ready on time. So they, we had an expectation of what they were going to do, and, but we experienced uh, something different. So there's a gap between what we expected them to do and what, you know, they said it's 6 o'clock and it's 6.30. They said they'd pick up the kids and they didn't pick up the kids. There's a gap between. So every single time, and I mean every single time, we have a choice of what we're going to put in that gap. It doesn't feel like we have a choice. It feels very instinctive. But every time there's a gap between what we expect them to do and what we experience, we have a choice. In fact, I want this to get in our brains so deep. I'm just going to have this repeat. So will you repeat after me? Will you re- you, those of you in Washington at the lake following the video, will you repeat after me? You guys ready? Yeah. I, choose I choose what I put in the gap, in the gap. Every, time. every time. I choose, I choose what, I what I put in that gap, in that gap. Every, time. every time. And here's our choices. You want to know? Want to know? We could choose either to believe the best. They said he'd be here at 6 o'clock at 6.30. I, I don't know why they're not here, but I'm sure that when they get here, they'll have a good explanation. When there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience, you have two choices. One is that you can believe the best, or two, you can assume the worst. Did it again. She did it again. I, I could have predicted. I mean, I could set my watch on the fact that he was going to do this. He's did it again. I, she's always this way. He's always this way. And you may not believe me, but hear this. Every time there's a gap, between what you expect and what you experience, you always, 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 always have the choice of what you put in that gap. And what you put in that gap is going to be one of the biggest determinants of whether or not you develop love in your own heart or you develop suspicion that creates a downward spiral in your relationship. And that's something you choose to do. Regardless of whatever they do, and, and maybe they have a bad explanation, I don't know, but that's, we'll talk about them some other time. When there's a gap, you have the opportunity to believe the best or assume the worst every single time. It doesn't feel like we have a choice, but we have that choice. And the best relationships, the best relationships decide that what they're going to put in that gap is they're going to believe the best. They're going to believe the best until they cannot believe the best any longer. They're going to believe and they're going to believe and they're going to believe the best until they can't do it anymore. That's what the Apostle Paul said, inspired by the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago. But interesting enough, there is a book that came out about 10 years ago. And in this book, this guy Marcus Buckingham, he wrote a book called Leadership and Management, The One Thing You Need to Know. And it wasn't a book on marriage. It just he used an illustration that caught my attention, and it was a, it was an illustration on what happy couples know. You know what do happy couples know? And it was a twenty year study that they did. They followed couples for twenty years, and, um, and couples, so couples that have been together for the long haul. And they were happy. So these just weren't couples who had been together for a long time and they just kind of gritted it out for the kids or they kind of gritted it out for some moral stance. Like they were together for a long time and they were happy. They were, they were full of joy. And what they found out 
was fascinating. I mean, to, to be able to know, to be able to find out what is the common denominator between couples who can have a kind of relationship that lasts a long time and still be, wouldn't that be amazing information to know, to know the common denominator of what makes happy couples happy? Wouldn't you like to know that? I bet you, you know, I was thinking today, I was like, I should charge money because they're going to really want to know this. This is my gift to you. Here's what they, all you have to do is read a book. Um, In this, what they did is in this, they, they had each couple, they rated themselves on various categories of character qualities. They rated it, they rated themselves in several categories and they rated their spouse. So they had the opportunity to rate themselves and then they had the opportunity to rate their spouse. And what they found out like just blew them away. They, what they discovered blew them away. They, they, happy couples rated their spouse higher in every single category than the spouse rated themselves. I'll say it this way. So the husbands rated their wives higher than the wife rated herself in every single category. The husband rated the wife higher than the wife rated herself. And here's what's really surprising. The wives rated the husbands in every single category. I mean, husbands are pretty high view of themselves. The, the, the wives rated their husbands higher in every single category than the husbands rated themselves without exception in every single... That was the common denominator. In other words, happy couples in their study had an unrealistic view of their spouse to the positive. Happy couples had an unrealistic view of their spouse to the positive. They even said that this positive view led to this upward spiral of love. I know, I gagged too. It's just like, what? In the, what? But what they're saying, like, it just had this, like, it just had this way of just creating more, uh, you know, the, the, the affection just grew and it grew and it grew as they began to, to believe the best and believe as they began to do this. And so here was the recommendation. After this 20-year study, here was the recommendation. This is how you be a happy couple. They said, find the most generous explanation for each other's behavior and believe it. Find the most generous explanation for each other's behavior and believe it. That is the secret to being a happy couple for the long haul, which Paul wrote 2,000 years ago. This is what love does. Love, when there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience, love fills that gap by believing the best. When there's a gap in what you expect and what you experience, the way that you are a loving person. See, love isn't something that you feel and you respond. You know, I used to be in love and I'm not in love anymore. No, 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 that's not what love is. That's something we picked up in junior high school. Let's just leave it in junior high. Love is not responding to an emotion that you feel. Love is an action that you decide to do and you have the choice of what you put in that gap in happy couples who stay together for the lifetime and they enjoy each other, what they do is they find the most generous explanation for each other's behavior and they believe it. In other words, they believe the best when there's a gap in the knowledge of what they expected and what they experienced. Now, I'm gonna add a little footnote here. 
Um, so bear with me. One footnote, number one, I'm not saying you don't address behavior, just so I'm clear. I'm not saying you don't address behavior. In fact, you owe it to the other person, the health of that relationship to address the behavior. Uh, you address the behavior, but here's what you don't do. You don't prejudge the intent. So they promised they'd be here at six. They promised they would do something and they didn't do it. So you have the behavior. You know what their behavior is, what they did. That's not some you know, you don't have to like imagine that they did something else. It doesn't say love believes that they were here at six when they really, that isn't, that's not what it's saying. You have the behavior, what they did, but what you don't know, what you don't know, what you think you know, but you don't know is you don't know why. You don't know the intent. You know what they did, but you don't know why they did it. No one does. It's only God who knows the heart. You think you know. You think you know why they did it, but you don't know why they did it. You have the behavior, what they did. You don't have the intent, why they did it. Only God knows the heart. So here's what we're going to do. When, when, you, when there's a gap in what you experience and what you expected, you suspend your judgment on why they did what they did until you talk to them. So it's not saying you don't address behavior. You do address behavior. In fact, Paul says in other passages, it's the loving thing is to, to, is to address the behavior, to, to correct, to rebuke, to bring to their attention. But what we do is we, do, we don't, when we don't know why, when we, when we know what, but we don't yet know why, we, don't, we suspend judgment on why until we address them. Secondly, the second footnote is physical, uh, around physical abuse and other patterns of sin. If you're in a relationship where there's physical abuse or other repeated patterns of sin, you need to include others. You need to include others. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you see your brother in sin, so this would obviously include if you're, if you're married, if you see your, there's someone you're married to who is sinning, you address it, and if it doesn't change, you get others involved. If you're in a relationship where there's physical abuse or other repeated patterns of sin, you get other people involved for the benefit of the one sinning. So you're, it's not like, you know, oh, if they're in sin, oh, I'm just going to, you know, they, they mean well. Like believing the best isn't like, isn't, it, that's not what we're talking about here. It's saying, no, there is an action. We are to judge actions. We do judge each other's action, but what we don't judge is the intent. But if the action persists, if the action persists, you need to get other people involved. A third footnote here is uh, when you're dating or exploring the possibilities. Uh, I'll say it this way. The time to ask questions about the accident record is before you buy the vehicle, not after you buy the vehicle. The time to ask about the salary and benefits of a job is before you accept the job, not after you accept the job. The time to look at how many calories are in that triple chocolate cheesecake <laughs> is before you eat it and not after you eat it. And the time to discern, to ask questions, who is this person really, is before you marry them and not after you marry them. And it sounds so simple, but we mess this up all the time. It's kind of like we, we, we're just like in this euphoric blind state. And then like a few months into our marriage, like, who are you? Who, who did I marry? Who are you? Um, marketers know this about in terms of making decisions. Marketers know, I don't care how brainy you are. I don't care if you're an engineer or whatever, you, you know, mathematician. Like, it doesn't matter. We all make emotional decisions. Everybody makes emotional decisions. Marketers know that you make your mind up 
in a split second what you're going to do based upon how you feel in the moment. And then your brain, your brain justifies the decision your heart's already made. That's how you're wired. That's why when you watch a jeans commercial, it's never about the gene, the quality, you know, the, 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 the stats on the jeans. It's not, it's not a cognitive commercial. It's a commercial that says, this is how attractive you'll feel and look if you have our genes. And, and then we want to buy them, and then we rationalize why we should buy them. It's why truck, like guys who live, you know, you got guys living in the city driving like F-150s and like, like what do you have a, you know, the, they have a commercial. It has nothing to do with why you need a truck. It has everything to do, if you buy this truck, you'll feel tough. And so you'll rationalize why you need a truck, not based upon some rational explanation, but it's based upon how you feel. And, and it's the worst in dating. You make emotional decision and you just leave all critical thinking behind. So like when you buy a car, the smart thing to do is to take the car to the mechanic, right? Like have him check it out. Say, is there any problem? Before you, you know, it's not, you don't just find a car that you love the color and whatever, and you have this emotional response. Like, you want to know the car's going to work. So you, the smart thing to do is, like, have somebody check it out. And that's what we do in dating. You have other people check the person. Show me the car facts. Show me the spouse facts. Like, show me, show me how many accidents they've been in. Like, show me some, you know, like, what are the details here? And we get this totally backwards. In dating, the other person can do no wrong. We lose all discernment. We don't just believe the best. We believe anything. So it's because you're in love, and that's what part of being in love is. And you know, you lose discernment, and you know, because we have a song, and it's like, well, does he have a job? It's like it doesn't matter because we have a song, and we, and you're just like, <laughs> and he's the one that's going to work all out. And so your friends are like throwing up cautions, like, how many times did he get fired? Like, you know, what happened in his last marriage? And it's just like, oh my gosh, you're like, man, get out of there, run. And you're like, oh, but, but you know, but our initials are the same, and you just have this emotional. <laughs> And you, and this, and, and, then, and then my biggest pet peeve is like you'll you'll have this random exception for how it worked out for somebody else. So you'll concede, like yeah, I know this isn't the way it should work out, but I knew somebody once who did it this way, and it worked out. Let me tell you something: people actually do win the lottery. Do you know that? People actually win the lottery. There are some people who buy lottery tickets and they win a lot of money. But guess what? Most people who buy lottery tickets don't win the lottery. (laughs) It doesn't make buying lottery tickets a sound financial decision. (laughs) Just because it worked out for so-and-so, and God bless them for that. I'm grateful for that. It, it doesn't make your dating strategy a good one. So when it comes to how you view someone's behavior, here's what I want you to hear. Before you get married, focus on the probability, not the possibility. Focus on the probability and not the possibility. And then when you get married, flip that. Flip it. After you get married, focus on the possibility, not the probability. And we do it backwards. When we're dating, we're just, it's all the possibility this could work. And it doesn't matter that, you know, it's, you know, I know this has happened to a million people, but it's going to be different for me. And, and then when we get married, we're like, who are you? And what's going on here? And da, 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 da. And we stop focusing on the possibility and we start focusing on the probability. The time to check out the calories is before you eat it. The time to look at the details is before you sign on the dotted line. 
Before you get married, focus on the probability, not the possibility. After you get married, you need to, you need to find the most generous explanation possible. If there's a way that you could put a generous something in the gap of knowledge, put it in there when you're married and do that. That's what, health, that's what great marriages do. Great marriages, when there's a gap between what they expected and what they experience, love fills that in. I want to, I want to just address this. I know this can be hard for us, and and I know because we all experience relational pain. Um, There's massive obstacles to this. Uh, One obstacle is just the experience that we have with this person. Um, They have messed up a lot, and that causes that makes it really difficult. The other thing is is our own is ourselves. You know, we didn't come in this relationship without baggage, whether we realize it or not. You know, we were raised a certain way. We had other relationships that we were in. It took us, it took my wife and I years before we realized that we, we were actually treating each other based upon other peop, how other people treated us, not how we were treating each other. And that's more insidious than you think. And, and so consequently, some of us just have a harder time trusting because we have pain in our past, because we have wounds, and the inconsistency of our spouse isn't helping anything, so we almost feel like we have to. And sometimes it's, lazy, it's just laziness. Like, it's a lot easier just to make assumptions than it is to ask the person. And then finally, just, you know what? Your intuition may be even right. You have this intuitive thought, and it's a negative thought. It may be probable that, that your intuition is right, so it actually feels like you have to fight against logic to believe the best. So we have some real challenges, but here's what I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you, those of us who are married, to give to your spouse as a gift. I am going to, when there is a gap between what I expect and what I experience, I am going to give you as a gift to believe the best because I want to be a loving person, and that's what love does. Love fills the gap by believing the best. Every time, it's a way, it may be undeserved, it may be, it may be a way of showing grace. And here's the good news, because, and, and the secret there is that this is actually a way that you can change your spouse for the better. And because, and the reason why we know that, because that's how Jesus changes us. He gives us undeserved grace. He gives us gifts. He gives us as a gift of love, not because we deserved it, not because we have a good track record, we have a terrible track record, but he gives us love. He gives us an efficacious love that changes us. And you can give to your spouse as a gift this kind of love. What it would look like in your marriage if any time there was a gap with what you expected and what you experienced, what if instead of assuming the worst, you began to believe the best? That you made the commitment that I'm going to first talk to them about what they did before I make up my mind about why they did it. I'm going to first talk to them about what they did before I make up my mind about why they did it. How would that affect your marriage? Now call me crazy, but what if we handled all our relationships this way? Our friendships, people in our community group, our mom, our sister, our brother, our father. You know, as a pastor, I've had a bird's eye view of thousands of relationships and I've been up close and personal to literally hundreds and it brings me to tears to think about the relational carnage that has been caused by you and I because when there's been a gap in what we expected someone to do and what we experienced them to do, we have a propensity to believe the worst, to assume the worst and not believe the best. And uh, two things about that I've learned. Number one, 90% of all relational conflict that I've seen 
is a misunderstanding. There was a gap in knowledge and we put a narrative that was negative and we never took the time to actually ask them why. And that narrative grew and grew and grew and grew until that's all we could see about that person. All we could see is that. And it may not even be true. It may not even be true. The other thing is suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you assume the worst about people, you'll find the worst. If you believe the best about people, you'll find the best. So if you assume the worst in you, so you, the, you know the whole thing that made us gag, the upward spiral of love? There's a downward spiral of suspicion. And in your relationships, what you'll do, if you have low trust, you'll create an environment of control. You'll create an environment of suspicion. They'll walk on eggshells and you will, you will, the thing that you fear the most will happen, which is they'll hurt you and disappoint you when you feel that gap. But here's what I want to empower you with. You're, not, you're, you're empowered today. You're empowered. You have a choice that when there's that gap, you don't have to assume the worst. You can choose. You can choose. Every time you can choose to believe the best because your ability to love is not dependent on the other person. Your ability to love is not dependent on the other person. Your ability to love is dependent on you. Because love is not a feeling that you respond to. Love is an action that you decide to do, which is why I want to end by dealing with ourselves. Why don't you stand?